Welcome to the State of Waste for February 21st, 2021. My name is Paul Jeffries, bringing you this weekly update as to what's going on in the legislation in Washington State. So a couple quick things before I get into some updates for bills or some deadlines that we're coming up with. February 22nd is the deadline for any bill that has a financial implication to be passed out of House Appropriations or Senate Ways and Means to the Rules Committee. So that will be an important day to pay attention to. And then March 9th is the last day for a bill to move from, to be passed out of one chamber into the other. So a couple deadlines coming up for our legislators. So there might be a lot of late nights for them as we progress forward through this legislative session. A couple bills with some updates, House Bill 1121 and 1131. Both have moved out of the Senate now. So they have been signed by the Speaker of the House and signed by the President of the Senate. Now waiting delivery to the governor's desk to be signed. Both of these have an emergency clause in them, which makes them, once the governor signs them, it makes it so that goes into effect immediately. There is no delay. Typically, there's a 90-day delay. Once the governor signs the bill, it goes into effect, or sometimes they'll say when it will go into effect, but it's usually a minimum of 90 days. So by putting the emergency clause in, it allows it to take effect right away, which is important for our seniors, especially as they're trying to graduate, that we don't want to be waiting 90 days for something to take effect. So House Bill 1121, update as far as that goes. I'm going to give you a little more details as to what's going on with that one. 1131 is pretty straightforward, so I'm not going to do the same with that. So let's look at House Bill 1121. This one passed the Senate 45 to 2, and as I watched the, the hearing or the debate on the floor, there were two people that voted against it. I don't know why. I don't recall them saying anything or saying why they were going to vote no. They just voted no. So I can't tell you what the rationale for their no vote was. And beginning with this begins with the class of 2020, which was uh, last year. So they've established that now instead of it being a one-year emergency waiver thing, they're going to extend it so that they've changed the language so that it fits any emergency that happens in the future there's already something going to be in place, which does make some sense. So it begins with the class of 2020 and the waivers can be granted if the reason for not meeting the requirements was due to a significant disruption, which we have with COVID. The schools made a good faith effort to support the student prior to utilizing the waiver. What is a good faith effort? Yep, that's right. We, we don't really know. So I guess we just have to prove that we've made a good faith effort. The student should be reasonably expected to graduate. This is, I love lawyer words like this. So reasonably expected to graduate. Um, I don't know what schools will say for what it means to be reasonably expected to graduate. For me, it's a kid that's on track. You've been on track the whole time. All right, you're reasonably expected to graduate. Could they stretch that a little bit? Yeah, I'm sure they could. If they make up two classes, that's reasonable that they could do that in a year. What if they have to make up four or five? I don't know. I don't know where the line is. So it's going to be up to some districts to decide what's going to be reasonably expected to graduate. What does that mean? And then the student has to have demonstrated they're ready for post-secondary career or college. So they just have to have met those requirements as well. So the waiver can be granted under those conditions. I know in the committee meeting they talked about on track to graduate. Well, the language in the bill does not say on track to graduate. It says, well, reasonably expected and that the school has had to have attempted to get them to graduate by normal means without using the waiver. So one of the requirements for the schools is they're going to have to maintain records and supply the information to OSPI so that OSPI can deliver records or information to the State Board of Education. 
And this bill also provides the State Board of Education some leeway to adjust these as necessary in the future so that there wouldn't have to be any legislation attached. It can be just up to the State Board to make some decisions, which I think would be helpful and we could get some stuff done a little bit sooner than having to wait for the legislative session to take place. Students can graduate by the same graduation requirements and pathways under normal circumstances. Those are not changed. One of the things we're gonna be waiting for is some guidance from OSPI. My guess is that the same waivers that were granted last year are gonna be granted this year. I can't see them making any changes. If anything, they would add something to it, but we will wait and see what guidance we get from OSPI. So that's it for House Bill 1121, a little, just a little more inside information as to what's going on in that bill. House Bill 1131 we talked about. Senate Bills 5044 and 5184, both are still in the House Education Committee. Again, the, the timeliness of these, these are not a priority. They don't, they don't have emergency clauses in them. These would be taking place the beginning of next school year, so they're, they're not trying to rush something through. So those will probably start to filter through the system uh, for the other chamber, for the House Education Committee after that March 9th deadline. House Bill 1113, 1162, those are still in the Rules Committee. The ones I put in bold on here, so House Bill 1176, that one has passed out of rules to the floor calendar. So the Rules Committee, I learned something this year watching their committee. They had something where each person on the committee got to designate a bill to go to the floor without any debate, without any discussion. It was, okay, does this one get to go? Yep, all right, let's take a vote, go, done. And they just moved some onto the floor that way. So that way, if someone had written a bill and they wanted to get to the floor, they could do that. Now, it doesn't mean that it will be voted on. That's gonna be up to the individual parties to decide which bills they're going to put forth for a vote on the floor. One of the interesting things that goes along with that is I always laugh when I hear the term caucus. So they'll go to caucus where they determine which bills they're going to bring forth for a floor vote. And I always just want to say bless you whenever they say caucus. Uh, that was just kind of funny. I chuckle to myself every time I hear that. House Bill 1273, that is still in the Rules Committee. We'll see if that moves anywhere. Senate Bill 5030, that did get moved to the floor. So we'll see if any action takes place on that. 51, Senate Bill 5161, that also is still in Rules Committee, did not get moved to the floor. An update on House Bill 1368. I thought I had read where the governor had signed this when I looked at the website today. It did not declare that the governor had signed this bill. This is the financial COVID relief money that came from the federal government. And when I read the newspaper article about it, it said there were over $700 million, and I don't recall that being the amount, but then I looked deeper into the bill, and I want to break that down for you. So the, the number that I saw in the newspaper was an accurate number, but it didn't break it down. So there is $668,130,000 designated for public schools, $46,263,000 designated for non-public schools. So it is over $700 million, but... They, they do break apart the money into public and non-public entities. So just an update, we should start to see some things. I'm not going to go through all the requirements that districts have to do to get that money because that's not going to directly impact us as teachers. Some new bills that did make it to the floor vote that I had not talked about previously. So House Bill 1302, this is the college and the high school where it, before it was only sophomores, juniors, and seniors could take college in the high school classes. This bill expands that to include freshmen as well, and that presentations must be provided 
for eighth graders as they go into high school that they know that this exists. College and the high school allow students to get college credit. They would have to pay for those credits. And the one thing it caps is the cost for the students in this. So it does say that it's only $65 for credit is the maximum that can be charged for a student. This will be inflated annually based on inflation. So that will change, but at least for the first year, it's $65 and then it will adapt accordingly. So that does open it up to freshmen, which is kind of interesting. I don't know how many schools are offering college and high school classes at the freshman level. I guess if you had some advanced students that were taking some of those classes as freshmen, then it would make some sense. Another interesting bill of Senate Bill 5097. This is the PFMLA update. So this came in. There was a bunch of laws passed last year as far as family medical leave goes. And states can be required or not required, but can provide more um, leave for people than the federal government does. So the federal government had the Family Medical Leave Act. Washington state adapted it and gave a little more um, information as far as leaves. And they added one thing in this year, which I thought was rather interesting. It's supposed to cover you, know, you and your family. It adds this sentence, includes any individual who regularly resides in the employee's home or where the relationship creates an expectation that the employee care for the person and the individual depends on the employee for care. So this really opens it up really wide as far as who can be covered under the PFMLA. Now it's only on the Senate right now, Senate side. So it hasn't passed out of the Senate, but we'll see if there are any amendments and if that language gets to continue through this. That would be some rather interesting cases that we might have come up with people trying to take leave for someone who reside, regularly resides in their home and I can see some benefits for it based on certain circumstances, but I can also see the possible abuses for that. It does also change the employment requirement. So to be eligible, according to the law currently, you have to have nine months and 965 hours worked in the previous 12 months. It will change that to a 90 days, more of a probationary period before you're eligible for this leave. So that's somewhat interesting. The last thing I'm going to talk about this week is the Department of Health updates from COVID cases in schools. So there was a, an article that submitted for the Department of Health for COVID cases. And they tracked this data from August 1st to December 31st. And they've found the cases that were specifically tied to schools. They were contracted at school. And then it also discusses how that spread outside of school and how many cases they've been able to directly tie to that. So that as of this was published February 11th. As of February 11th, there were a total of 84 COVID-19 outbreaks occurred in that time period, August 1 to December 31. 305 of those cases were associated with those 84 outbreaks. So with all of the schools that have been in session and some that even have remote, I thought it was interesting to look through that some of these have been tied to schools in remote settings, but they have special education students that come in that may have had some cases. So the remote of those five cases, five of the 84 were from schools that were in remote learning. 10 were from in-person, 19 from hybrid, which is kind of interesting that there's more in hybrid than in-person. But And then there's some remote with the exceptions. And of course, everybody's favorite category, other and unknown, which is 40 of them. The interesting thing I found about this that I'd like to share with all the, there's, there's a lot of fear about there about COVID with teachers. 
And again, I'm not trying to make any statement other than say this is the data that the state, the Department of Health has given us. So based on the age groups, they did a breakdown by age group. In the 5 to 19 category, there's about 150 of those 300 students that have been tied to that, that had COVID, had tested positive. 50 to 50 and above has was, let's see, 67. And then uh, everything else fit in between that 20 to 49 group. The interesting thing about this was based on all of those, there were zero hospitalizations overnight and zero deaths, which I think is very encouraging. And then as the vaccination starts, well, I think our schools become even safer. So not a lot of, of really bad things happening. Yes, people will catch it. I think, don't think there's any way to prevent that. But that there have been no deaths and no hospitaliza hospitalizations, I think is very encouraging as it goes as far as COVID. So I know my school is going back on March 1st. We're going to be starting our hybrid, and I'm super excited for those kids to come back and be in my classroom because I do not like teaching through Zoom, and I don't know if anybody else does, but um, I hope I never have to again. And hopefully we can get, all get through this and finish out the school year and maybe start off next school year a little bit better. Hope this was helpful. Again, my email address, stateofwastewa at gmail.com. If you have questions or comments, please feel free to leave them. Please feel free to share this with anybody that you think would benefit from this information. Have a great day.